Hey! You're listening to Talk of Shame, a Wamina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. I'm your host, Alia Moro. I'm an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist and author of the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom. Having felt the impacts of shame, or Arab, as Arabs like to call it, on many aspects of my life, I've become pretty obsessed with the concept and the question of how we can rid ourselves from it. Throughout the season, I dig deeper into shame with the help of some brilliant guests. Shame breeds shame, so we gotta talk about it. Right, where do I begin? The first time that I remember... The first time... The first time that I remember feeling shame... Shame... Shamed... Was... Was... Um... Um... um, uh, By my laugh... I remember my dad telling me or something along those lines. Um, I remember, I remember. I remember. I think I felt shame the first time I started wearing low-cut pants or low-cut jeans. And the way that I was sitting in front of male family members and uh, having friends that were boys and hanging out with boys as like a kid and um every time i'd bend over my father would flip out i just became uh sexualized by my mom basically at quite a young age as like a kid probably in elementary school like five or six um um and and it was really just heartbreaking to just constantly be screamed at by my dad and just feel so ashamed of my body I, 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 until this day i can still be shamed for my loud laugh so I made a special point of not teaching my kids, my daughters, the word Aib nor Haram, and I just want them to live their lives. When we talk about shame and the way that it impacts women, I think one of the first things that comes up is our bodies. And that's not just how our bodies look, although that's obviously a big part of it as well, but it's how we're sitting, like our periods, how much skin we're showing. Everything that we do with our bodies is a battleground for shaming, essentially. And even if by some miracle we're not absorbing messages from family, society and the media, the lack of conversation around things, especially things like sex and periods, fosters shame in and of itself. It's protection. First and foremost, knowledge is protection. Knowledge for your children early on is protection. Knowledge for your teenagers about sex and STDs and safe sex doesn't mean that we're promoting sex. It actually reduces the risk of them contracting STDs and statistically, they are less likely to engage in sexual activities early on. That's Noor Imam, my amazing guest on today's episode of Talk of Shame. Noor is a fertility, birth and postpartum doula, a certified reproductive health and sex educator and the founder of Mother Being, an online platform that provides easy, informative content in order to empower women in the MENA region through education and awareness about their reproductive and sexual health. We speak about how we're so often raised through shame and fear, how she's going about trying to raise a sex-positive, shameless daughter, she starts off telling us what she thinks about when she hears the word shame. Shame breeds shame. Let's talk about it. 
it's kind of hard to to really pinpoint what it exactly means to me, but I would say shame is being made to feel very negative about yourself, um, less worthy or um, a feeling that makes you feel like your confidence in yourself is completely crushed. And safe to say that a lot of um, young girls growing up with Middle Eastern families or in the Arab region are are subjected to that as well. What are the sort of things that you remember being made to feel shamed for as you were growing up? I don't remember that I was ever like really shamed from my parents, but it was more in school um, when I got my period. It was something like you you couldn't really take out your your pad to, yeah. to just go to the bathroom and change it. And you'd be really, really careful with the crackling sound of the pad um, mm-hmm. so that it doesn't draw attention to, to the boys in the class. Um, I think I also had a lot of shame surrounding uh, my body hair as a child uh, in school and uh, when boys started to like girls and started to show interest in girls I was very keen on removing my body hair as quickly as I as my mother would let me and tweezing my eyebrows as quickly as I could because I was so ashamed of my eyebrows I was so ashamed of like my mustache and like all of those things and it's funny that you get to a point in adulthood where you're like, oh, my God, like I wasted so much energy on this stuff. <laughs> so much energy, honestly. I remember one time I, I took like a, my dad's shaver that he used on his beard and I shaved my eyebrows using it. Oh, my God. And my mom was freaking out when she noticed. She was like, you shaved your face. Like, <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely. No, I took the razor to my face countless times. Oh, honestly, I love your Instagram and you're just such a good advocate for not feeling ashamed, I think, about our bodies, about our sexualities, about periods, about all of this kind of stuff. How did you, like, how, what's your journey into into all of this? So my journey into, like, um, freeing myself of shame or my journey into what I do? Well, both. I guess they must be linked in a way. So weird thing is that it kind of, it was an organic development. So when I started Mother Being, it was just a means for me to create accessible content for women who were expecting or who were trying to conceive or were like new moms because there was really no no information out there that was speaking to women living in Egypt. And then I quickly found that the majority of the people who followed me weren't even my target audience. So they were more like 18-year-olds okay. who were very interested in like this empowerment aspect and this like bodily autonomy because I spoke a lot about like your rights at birth, um, you having the right to choose how you want to birth. And they started asking questions about their period and I started getting all these stories of how how their lives are so full of shame and how they feel like their their bodies aren't normal or that they look weird or that they'll never be attractive to men. And that was actually where my journey really started as well. I basically started to practice what I was preaching. Mm-hmm. Of course, no one gets rid of all these deeply ingrained thoughts uh, overnight or even in a year, I think it's a lifelong process to 
let go of all these thoughts like some women messaging me like saying they can never have sex with the light on because they're afraid that when their husbands see how their vulvas look like they would refuse or they would get disgusted and the problem that i realized is that the majority of the issue comes from women and men obviously but like women themselves are so disconnected from their bodies and that's because of how we were raised that it it, it just like it it seeps into everything in their life and they don't realize that it's also work that they need to do on themselves as well like they need to really do the work to take a mirror and look at themselves mm. or look at themselves naked and just really start accepting what they see or start what's it called like uh, exposing themselves and this is what I do with my classes that I expose them to so many images of different colors, shapes, sizes of vulvas and penises and all of that stuff because we only get to see one certain way that things should look which comes from pornography mm -hmm. and that's the only thing that we're wired to think that this is what everyone should look like when I always tell them, like, guys, we're we're from North Africa. Are you fucking kidding me? Sorry. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, come on, Yanni. You're you're Arab or you're from Saudi Arabia or you're from Egypt, Yanni. You're not you're not it's not gonna look pink and, and white down there. Like look at look at your face. You're you're not white. And it's it's so crazy to see that, but it's it's been really, really amazing to get to a point where at least with my sexuality and my femininity, I've never been more connected to my womanhood. Like never in my entire life until like this past year. That's amazing. And do you think that, I guess, speaking out about it and sort of getting, you know, responding to messages and stuff, I guess it sort of makes you do the work on yourself as well, like you were saying. Absolutely. Definitely. Like it makes you have to think about it. Like you can't, I would never put out anything that I don't wholeheartedly believe in, especially when, when it's the content about like more like rewiring the brain. Um, obviously, there is a lot of content that's scientific and medical that has nothing to do with my personal opinions. But the things that I, I post that work on like just changing the ideology and changing the way that we're raised. Like there was a video that I posted about like why we feel pain during sex. But it wasn't from a medical point of view. It was more like analyzing how we're all raised. And mm. because of this shame, there's, there's no possible way that we can expect that our girls who will grow up to be women will have fulfilling sex lives once we're married because we're, we're bullying them and shaming them about their bodies and their sexuality and telling them that sex is aib and sex is haram and men are haram and don't talk to boys and don't do this with boys. And then all of a sudden... You get married and yalla, take off your clothes and uh, you should be okay with penetration. Like, how? Yeah. How is that even possible? Of course, most women have, a lot of women have vaginismus, pain during sex and inability to even have penetrative sex. And that is a lot of the times due to psychological issues or the psychological side of things rather than a physiological issue. Yeah, 100%. I think, like you said, there's such a huge disconnect um, between the things that we're told and then the ways that as we get older, we're supposed to behave or that we want to behave. 
And I feel like a lot of the messaging that we receive around it is just so unhelpful. I loved, you know, I saw on your Instagram, you posted about some of the ways that you're raising a sex positive child. And that's, you know, even in terms of using correct names for the body parts and all of that kind of stuff, instead of, you know, all these weird nicknames that we can even have for the vagina and, you know, people. Tutu. <laughs> yeah. Mimi. <laughs> yeah. What are the kind of conversations that you have with her? I get, how old is she? She's still really young, I think, she's, right? Yeah, she's not yet two and a half. So she's okay. two in like three months. A very strong-willed child. Uh, very opinionated and like, uh, she's, she's going to be a very big, big, strong character. Uh, she mm. already is. And... Um, my husband and I both agreed like we we don't want her to grow up the way we were raised or the way at least I was raised. Like I told him like there's there's no way that I want her to start figuring stuff out when she's 15. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Like she needs to know this stuff uh, early on because she needs to be protected first and foremost. And this mm -hmm. is something I tell a lot of parents that people are afraid that when you tell them you need to start sex education early, they kind of think like, no, you're going to give them ideas. When in reality, mm. sex education is a very gradual process that like you're not going to come and talk to a five-year-old and uh, talk to them about arousal and penetration. You're going to start briefly explaining it. And then when they're a bit older, you're going to start increasing the amount of information um, that they can handle. But the conversation needs to start early on because it's, it's how humans come to existence. Like there's, there's no way to hide it. It's like you need to teach your kids how to eat, how to drink. You need to teach them about how they came to being. And with her, it's been interesting. Like obviously she's too young. She, she's not asking questions about like how do babies come, where do babies come from and stuff. But she understands that babies live in the mother's stomach. She understands that babies come out of vaginas because of my work as a doula, like we have this ritual that when I go to a birth, I don't know when I'm going to see her. So I need to say goodbye because like I might be gone for an entire day. I might be gone for 24 hours. Mm. With time, I, I realized she was very interested in like seeing the babies. Okay. Like she would ask about the babies. Like you said, you're going to go and help a mom get a baby. Like where's the baby? And so I, I, I take, I document for my clients. So I used to show her pictures of the babies once they were born. And then with time, um, she would uh, look at my phone while I'm scrolling through Instagram and uh, watching birth videos. And so she started watching videos of babies being born. So she used to see like heads coming out of vaginas and wow. um, C-sections. And I'd explain very, very casually like yeah this is how babies come like this is where they come from and you have one too but you're still young and when you're older you might have a baby mm. and so she she was very interested in it and she never she never squirmed she was never like afraid she was shocked at the beginning she's like what is this but she I think the thing is with kids that they take from your reaction so if a parent is making a big fuss about something that their child has seen or their child is asking about, then their child will feel like there's an issue. Mm. But if the parent on the other side is very chill about it, very calm, like, yeah, this is one, two, three, the child will feel like, okay, it's normal. And then life goes on. Same thing happens with my period. When I have my period, she's there. She sees it. 
And the first time, of course, she she thought I was bleeding out. She thought I I had like a wound or something. Yeah. And so she she had a very concerned look on her face. And then I responded to that with like, no, I'm fine. This is called a period. It's it's not a, I said, wawa or a ta'wira in Arabic. Like it's not a wound. Um, this is very normal. And this is the reason like I can have babies. And this is the reason why I could have you. Um, so mm-hmm. she she was just like quiet. I told her I'm not in pain. And she just like poked her head between my legs like I was sitting on the toilet and she kind of like wanted to look in between my legs to see what was happening. And so I just like really casually opened my legs and I let her see uh, the blood in the in the toilet. And uh, so she asked me like, what about me? Like Sophie, period. And I was like, yeah, you, you will get one when you're older, but not now because you're you're still young. You're still a kid. And that was it. Like, oh my and, God, that is amazing. Yeah, but but that was really it. Now, when I have my period, she knows, ah, mommy has her period. And uh, yeah. and she helps me with like, she opens the drawer with like sanitary products. And she like gives me my cup, <laughs> my period cup. Oh. <laughs> and she wants to wear a pad. So she uses like my panty liner sometimes to put on her. <laughs> oh my God, this is just the cutest thing ever. <laughs> I know, but it's amazing because there was never a point in time where she thought that there was anything wrong with anything that she was asking. Mm. Children at that age, they they explore their bodies with touch. And usually they tend to do that when you're changing their diapers because otherwise everything's covered with a diaper. Mm. So you find that their hands wander and they're touching different parts of them, their legs and their their vulvas or their penises and, and so on. And so I realized she was trying to look. And obviously because girls and women like our stuff is like tucked in you can't really see mm. and so I asked her like do you want to see and she was like yes I do and so I got my mirror held it so that she could look and she just started examining herself and asking me like what's this and I tell her like this is your clitoris and like what's this this is your vagina what's this these are your labias and she was so amazed that she could see something that's part of her body that she had never seen before. Yeah. And that was the point where I was like, this needs to happen with everyone. All children deserve to grow up in an environment where it's okay to learn about their bodies. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's their body. Like, no one has the right to take away this knowledge from someone. So true. And creating that shame and stigma so early on really sets up our children to failure and sets them up to a lot of danger down the line when they're teenagers. They get their information from toxic sources, from friends. They tend to like explore the internet more because they know they don't have a source of knowledge at home. Yeah. And this is what I'm definitely trying to change with my daughter. Like I want this part at least to always be an open conversation between us where she can ask me about sex openly. She can ask me about masturbation. She can ask me about pleasure. She can ask me about periods. All of that stuff needs to be an open dialogue because otherwise she's going to get it elsewhere and I'd prefer she get it from me. A hundred percent. That sounds just so amazing. Like I'm literally just thinking, I can't even imagine what it would be like to grow up in that environment rather than in one where, you know, none of these things are spoken about. I just feel like, it must, you know, as you get older, it must just feel so empowering. And it must just be so nice to be able to have that. Like, I definitely didn't have that at all growing up. And I ended up in a lot of, you know, very not great situations. And I wished at the time that I could speak to my mom about it, but I couldn't. Um, And I think it's so interesting, because 
if we, like you said, you know, the, the kid learns from us and from our reactions. So if we feel ashamed about these things, if we're not able to have these sort of conversations with them, then that shame also just keeps getting passed down. Absolutely. 100%. And it's the shame and it's the fear. And I think in general with our culture, we're very afraid of critical thinking. We're very afraid yeah. of like stepping outside of the norm and just like looking at it, not necessarily doing anything, but just like analyzing, is this really okay? Like, is this fine? Is this truly and 100% okay? And I think a lot of women are afraid of doing that. So there was like a video that I posted. It was a reel that I posted also on TikTok, which went viral. Basically, the reel was just about destigmatizing masturbation because I see a lot of sources on social media from so-called doctors who are talking absolute bullshit about female masturbation, saying that it'll cause paralysis and incontinence what? and inability to concentrate and you will lose your eggs every time you masturbate so you'll become wow. less fertile. Wow. And I was like, this shit has to stop. Like, People obviously believe them because they're doctors and there's absolutely no medical truth to the stuff that they're saying. You would lose your eggs. Like, that's just what. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. That's what they're telling women. When you masturbate, you lose your eggs. So by the time you're married, you're infertile. And I decided to do a reel where I was kind of like dissing the stuff that's shared on, on social media. Very like fun and light thing. It was like saying... Basically, like I gave a few quotes of like what other doctors say. And then I actually posted one, two, three, four, five, six benefits of masturbation. Okay. Which are like totally legit. And I never said that it was my opinion, but because it's never my opinion, but I just posted it and shit hit the fan on Instagram specifically, obviously on TikTok as well. But like on Instagram, people were like haram policing me. Until mm. like Yomil Iema, like you are gonna die and burn in hell, and what you're saying is haram. How could you promote masturbation? How could you marav There was a lot of positive feedback, but there was a lot of haram, 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 haram. Mm. How dare you? How could you? And so I posted like a follow up IGTV video afterwards, saying like, we can have these conversations and not bring religion into it. Yeah, these are not my opinions, but. The thing is that a lot of the negative comments were from women, not from men. Mm. So obviously there were a lot of men, but a lot of the anger came from women. And I was having this discussion with my husband. I was like, I think they're truly like afraid of, let's say this woman is like 35. She's been married for 10 years. She's absolutely miserable, has never had pleasurable sex in her life. And now she's seeing someone telling her like, actually masturbation is good for you and it might help your sex life and that scares them or it makes them angry like then no it like no one can if, if I couldn't have that then no one can have that and we're not going to think outside the box like we're not going to even think about the fact that if you're saying that masturbation causes incontinence and paralysis then you're saying sex does that as well because they're like how how is how does this do that but sex is fine somehow and it just blew my mind that people made it seem like it equates to adultery in religion, you know? Or like murder or like some... Or murder, exactly, things, you know? exactly. It was very frustrating and it makes me sad that a lot of girls are growing up in households that are very hostile. But I'm also seeing a lot of change, like a lot of youth 
who follow the page who are like 16 and 15 and a lot of girls who are 15 messaging us saying like, I'm, can I follow this page? Like, am I allowed? <laughs> and we're always like, yeah, of course you're allowed. Like it's, it's the internet. Like, yeah. This is not just like some porn, like, exactly. this is f- facts, you know? Exactly. Let's pause the conversation here for some words from our sponsor, BetterHelp. We carry the burden of shame with us for longer than we realize, and it weighs on us more than we think. For so many of us, mental health services are inaccessible, but BetterHelp offers professional counseling worldwide through video and phone sessions at prices that are more affordable than traditional online counseling. They also offer financial aids. Because we often need support between therapy sessions, BetterHelp offers a messaging service where you can text your counselor and get timely responses with security and privacy. BetterHelp's licensed therapists are ready to offer their broad range of expertise wherever you are. As a Talk of Shame listener, you get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. Use promo code TALKOFSHAME and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Back to the conversation. I think that's one of the really difficult things, though, is that haram and aib are so often used really interchangeably. Like it can be quite difficult to separate. You know, people will say haram when actually what they mean is aib. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's not even just about sex, although it probably is used more for that, but it's, you know, so many things. And I think that can be quite confusing, especially when you're young to sort of be like, okay, well, am I going to burn in hell then if I've done this thing? And that's really scary. That's a really scary feeling to have, I think. Absolutely. Like, imagine you're you're feeding your children ideas about, like, even let's say we're not going to talk about sex, anything. Like, the way we raise our children is based on fear. So I remember, like, uh, a teacher told us, like, if you don't finish your food, it's going to run after you in the afterlife. <laughs> It's going to follow you. Do you know the saying? Like, I never heard that one. But yeah, I... no, like you need to finish your plate. Otherwise, it's going to like haunt you uh, in the afterlife. And that's scary. Or when, when a child is left-handed and, and they're being told, like, uh, if you eat with your left hand, then you're eating with Satan. Like, wow. why would you say that to a child who's left-handed? Like, they can't help themselves. <laughs> it's the way their brains are wired. And like a lot of the stuff that we're teaching our children, like, I don't even want to teach her, like, if you lie, you're going to go to hell. No, if you lie, that's not nice because you need to be someone who speaks the truth because you're a good person and you should be honest, even if that honesty might hurt someone. But like, I mean, it's really mind blowing for us to expect that people grow up to be okay. And I think that's what our parents have done. Like, we grew up like that and we're fine. It's like, no, you guys are not fine. (laughs) You guys are absolutely not fine. Yeah, there are better ways. Like, why would we not want to improve and progress? Exactly. I spend hours with youth on clubhouse rooms who are like 16 and they know more than I've ever known at 16. It's like, how do you have an opinion about everything at 16? Like, how can I talk to you about politics and you'll still have an opinion? It's fantastic. It's amazing. And it's because they're encouraged to have opinions as well, I think. You know, I feel like even there's this understanding that I definitely grew up with. And I know for a fact that, you know, my mom did. And she used to always tell me, like, children should be seen, not heard. You know, she didn't tell me that, but her dad had told her that. 
And it was almost like, I don't know, this sort of understanding of like, as children, you should just shut up. You should listen to what you're told. Your elders know better than you. This is the way it is. This is the way it's always going to be. You know, there, there isn't much room for, like you said, critical thinking at all, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really interesting that you're saying that because I was talking to my husband about like how we were raised with like strict curfews and like mm. uh, there comes a time in every girl's life, especially every Arab girl's life, when she starts dating the relationship with the father, with with you, with her father, automatically gets strained. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happened with my dad as well. Like when I was dating in my teens, he just couldn't deal with me, and it only started getting better once I got engaged and got married. And like our relationship has been improving over time more and more. And I was telling my husband, like, how could I want or be okay with missing out on my child growing up? Yeah. Like, how could I be okay with isolating them and not wanting to hear about their opinions? Like, not wanting to know them. Because we have a two-year-old now and all we do is crave to know her and to know mm-hmm. who she's becoming, regardless of who we are as parents. Like, she, she's not turning out the way she is because of us. Mm-hmm. This is her character. And we're just in awe of who she's becoming. So I was telling him, like, how... Can we repeat the same mistakes that our parents and every Arab person, or like not every, but a lot of Arabs, Arab parents do, which is that their child reaches a certain age and then there's like radio silence. Mm. The child doesn't want to share anything with the parent because if the child doesn't turn out to be like the parent, then the child is a disappointment. And that's absolutely not the case for my husband and I, because we were saying like, I genuinely don't care what she believes in or like not that I don't care but like she doesn't need to be a little version of me she doesn't need to have the same beliefs but I'm really interested for her to feel safe to tell me and to enlighten me with her ideas and her beliefs because she's always going to bring something new to the table and that's the wonderful thing when you're a parent and you start trying to see your child as a person who has their own Mm. thoughts and opinions and not someone who needs to become a carbon copy of you or maybe a, a slightly better version of you but not like too too different because too different is scary you know there's a really beautiful Khalil Gibran poem um, and he goes your children come through you but not from you they belong not to you and I think that's such an important thing that I don't think you know I think a lot of cultures but I definitely feel like Middle Eastern culture holds on to that very much the idea that your kids are reflective of you and how you raise them. And if they do something that is out of the norm, then that's reflective of you as a parent and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that we don't understand that actually knowing our children is very important and them feeling like they can come talk to us. How do you think we go about raising kids and sort of like instilling you know, good values and, and, and all of that kind of stuff without the use of fear and shame? Well, I think it's first and foremost, it's how you emulate what you want your child to learn. So mm. let's say, for example, this is a fault of mine personally. We have a dog, okay? Our dog's name is Fritz. And uh, Fritz loves uh, Sophia, my daughter. He loves her beyond, like, he, she's probably his favorite person in the house. Mm-hmm. But Fritz is a rescue dog, and he has his, like, own issues, and he's very needy, and he, he really likes to 
like stick next to you when you're sitting and sometimes it's really hot and you just like can't have fur next to you and he won't shove like he won't budge if you push him away from you he'll come back like super glue you know Mm. and sometimes I get angry or I'm really hot and I'm bothered and I'm frustrated and so I just like shove him down the the couch and I realized recently that she started doing the same thing she went from this very kind and very gentle and she used to hug him and and put her head on his belly while he was asleep to being frustrated and snappy and angry at him uh, when he would come and uh, sit next to her. And and I realized, oh my God, I did this. It's not because she's like this, it's because she's seen me, maybe my husband, do that. And mm. that's what made her think that it's okay to do that. And now we're starting to try and like rewire this as quickly as possible. We're trying to approach it in a very gentle way mm. that she just sees us doing these things. She sees us being kind to each other, my husband and I. She sees us showing affection in front of her. She sees us showing affection to our families, to our dog. And that's how we were hoping to raise her, by just Mm. by her witnessing a good atmosphere at home, an open atmosphere at home. By example, literally, I think kids really are sponges, aren't they? So, you know, you could say all of this stuff, but if you're acting in the opposite way, they're going to go with the way that you're acting, not with what you're saying. Absolutely, for sure. You know, so I was reading um, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, which is so brilliant. She speaks a lot about emphasizing the difference between you are bad and you've done something bad and that those are obviously two completely different things. And interestingly, she said that, you know, when you shame someone, you actually take away their ability to grow and to, to change their behaviors because you've essentially said you are bad. You've not made it about the behavior at all, which I find quite I found that really interesting as a sort of distinction between the two. You know, we often do internalize a lot of the kind of criticism and we think that it is inherently who we are as opposed to, oh, you've just, you know, you've told a lie, like, you know, don't do that, but not you are a liar. Yeah, definitely. And because we're made to think that these things are bad and people who do that then are like, sinners and kafara like those who don't believe in god and all of that mm. stuff khalas you you think that i'm a bad person i i did this i'm a bad i'm a horrible person when and it takes so much time to rewire that to realize this doesn't make me a bad person i'm not a bad person i'm actually a good person i do good on earth i do good with my family i do good with my friends i i'm a good person and it's understanding what a good person means and I think the most person who has taught me this is my husband. He, or like we don't believe in a God who is petty and who will count your sins and count yeah. your uh, good deeds and then at the end calculate it and tell you, oh, you get this number and this number takes you to heaven and hell. You know, it's like God is so much bigger and we need to stop reducing God to someone who is, in Arabic, we say, hey, msiklik al-wahda, like, will count every single tiny mm. little thing that you've done and discount every good thing that you've done. And if we teach our children, if you do this, you're going to go to hell, halas, they're going to think that they're bad people. And like, what's the point of even being good now that I'm already going to hell, you know? Halas, ma'am bad, ma'am bad. We need to teach them out of love and to even worship. We need to worship out of love. Mm. 
and we need to worship out of devotion and not out of fear of being punished yeah. or fear of going to hell. That that doesn't make it genuine, I think. I agree with you. So what do you do in terms of like, okay, obviously you and your husband have done a lot of work on yourselves and you've made your decisions for how you want to raise your daughter and you know all of the rest of it. What do you do in terms of when she inevitably is shamed by the school and the kind of things that you get taught in school or that, you know, something that like a family member says or something that, you know, someone from outside of this household says to her? How do we go about rectifying the harmful messages that our children might receive outside of the house? I don't have a very big example now, obviously, because she's very young. But what we try to do now in this age, that there are two things that I feel like I have control over. First is like in Arab families, like we tend to comment on like the cuteness of the child's belly. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you know this, but like if they have a little kirsch after eating and it's like big and people or adults usually like point at it and they're like, oh, it's so cute and look at your karush and look at your belly and look at... <laughs> and it's cute and all, but I I make it a point to always like stop the comment because I never want to draw attention to a specific body part. Mm. I never want her to live with that because I lived with this. I lived with a lot of shame of having had a belly since I was one. And I don't want someone to make her aware of a body part or to make her start questioning like why are they commenting on this this body part Mm. but also I want her to see that as a parent we stand up for her so like for instance with kids this age you start teaching them about consent and even with close family members there's a lot of like sometimes like uh, a family member would be like uh, come give me a kiss or give uncle a kiss and usually the parents would be like, come on, come on, give uncle a kiss. And I remember as a kid, I, I used to like scream. Like I would mm. rather die than give uncle a kiss. <laughs> and I would still be forced to give uncle a kiss. And I would still be forced to receive uncle's icky kiss. And it's like you're rude if you don't want to or if you don't. It's like, whoa. Exactly. And I remember as a child, I used to look to my parents first. And I only realized this with my child, that I used to look to my parents for help, Mm. to like, look at them like, are you going to give me an out? Like, are you going to tell me it's okay not to? Mm. And when they used to push me to do it, regardless of how I felt or regardless how I looked and how uncomfortable I seemed, that broke parts of me along the line and that that blurred the lines of consent and I think down Mm. the line as well. And what we try to do with Safiya is even with my parents, Hatta, my parents, if I feel or sense that she doesn't want to give someone a kiss, I will be the first one to say, if you don't want to, that's fine. And I carry her and we're like, you can just say bye from afar. That's fine. Yeah. And when she sees that her parents have her back, that her parents are going to always do that reinforcement or like to try and counteract whatever is going to happen in her life, because she will get bullied. She will, like, she will be exposed to bad things. But if she was raised from since she was one to know that my parents stand up for me, my parents will never push me to do things I'm uncomfortable with, my parents 
never shamed me for my body. They never shamed me for what I ate. They never shamed me for the way my hair looked. All of that stuff, Mm. that's what's going to help her find refuge or seek refuge in us when she faces hardships in life. Mm. In the little things or the big things in life where we can't influence what happens, at the very least what we can do is that she knows she's safe at home. She knows she can come talk to us and she knows that she's accepted. And she knows that she's got a choice as well. You know, I remember that as well, being like, oh, go hug him. And I really don't want to, but I don't feel like I have a choice. And I think that then chips away at you more than people realize. And it's funny because that's been, I think, a big conversation recently. I've noticed on Instagram, people saying, you know, what you just said in terms of like, if your child doesn't want to hug her grandmother, she doesn't need to. And people are commenting like, what? What is this? You guys have all lost the plot. Like, <laughs> you know, but but it's it's weird because so much, like we said, is just so ingrained that we don't even stop to think about it for a second and think about the long-term impacts of what that means and what that is telling the child about how the world works and, and their place in it. Absolutely. I think it's Fallon, like giving them the choice to say yes and no to things early on. That's what empowers them or that's what are the building blocks of them learning bodily autonomy and Mm. and learning about consent and learning about their boundaries and learning about all of these things. They need to learn this early on because if we push our children to do things as parents, as their source of protection and comfort, we tell them, go kiss I don't know who even if she doesn't want to and she says no and I keep saying that very like straightforward in front of the person like no we're teaching her consent Mm -hmm. like we're teaching her that it's okay to say no and if she said no then it's okay and I expect the person on the other side to not get offended obviously I assume people do um, get offended sometimes or they feel like but I'm like if if I tell my dad that, like, but I'm her grandfather, yani e, yani e, she she says no to to kissing me. Like, if she doesn't want to, then she doesn't want to. Why would you want a kiss that comes from an, a place of force? Yeah. Like, why would you want? Like, would you not rather have a genuine kiss from her tomorrow or the day after when she feels like it? Yeah, so true. That's the thing. That mm. when we teach them early on to say no and to be loud and to to be like, no, I don't want this this doesn't feel good or like, I don't want to sit, uh, I don't want to hug you, I don't want to kiss you, I don't want marashi. You're teaching them to be vocal about what their body wants or what feels good or doesn't feel good to their bodies. Yeah. It's, it's protection. First and foremost, I always tell people this. Knowledge is protection. Knowledge mm. for your children early on is protection. Knowledge for your teenagers about sex and STDs and safe sex doesn't mean that we're promoting sex. It actually reduces the risk of them contracting STDs and statistically they are less likely to engage in sexual activities early on if they get proper sex education. I always say this, like knowledge is protection. Mm. It's prevention. Yeah, I think so too. I think, you know, honesty, knowledge, and again, not raising, not like leading with fear because it's proven that that doesn't work. And like, I think also letting everyone be individual and letting them be their own people from, from when they're born. I was relisting something the other day and it was saying from the second your child is born, they're starting to move away from you, you know, day by day, they're becoming less 
of you. And that needs to be, I think, encouraged and championed and helped. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, Noor, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been really lovely. Thank you so much, Alia. It was really, really fun. Bye. Oh my God. Imagine growing up with someone like Noor as your mom. Wow. I literally can't wait to chat to her daughter in like 15 years and see how inshallah kick ass she's going to be. Shame is so often passed down from generation to generation. And I really believe that it's our duty as human beings on this planet to unlearn this shame for ourselves, but also for the next generations. Noor's advice and viewpoints are so helpful for parents or people who want to be parents, I think. But it's also really insightful for everyone, even just in terms of realizing how pervasive these harmful messages are and that there is, in fact, another way. Even just being able to pinpoint where some of that shame has come from is really helpful in terms of helping us unpick it for ourselves. It's important to do, because otherwise shame has a serious hold over our lives and our ability to be happy, authentic humans. Next week, I'll be getting further into this with Mariam Guth, a Saudi shadow worker and storyteller. Here's a snippet of Mariam's wisdom from next week's episode. You feel unworthy of opportunities, of connection, of of showing yourself, of showing up actually, of expressing yourself and connecting to your sensuality, your feminine energy, or men to their emotions and to their desires. I'm Alia Moro, and you've been listening to Talk of Shame, a Wemina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Sound designed by the talented Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Wemina producers Amira Ahmed, Elisa Friha, and Rhythma Ekinayaki. Thanks to everyone who submitted voice notes for this week's episode. Follow me at Alia Moro and at Wemina to submit your thoughts for future episodes. We'll be dropping questions every Saturday. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, download, and review. It really does help get the word out there. Talk to you next week.